0: Hello, brothers and sisters, and welcome to another edition of The Remnant Report. I am your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson, a.k.a. The Remnant Warrior, and I am so very, very happy and thrilled to have all of you guys here tonight, and I am more than blessed to have on the show with me my two very special guests, BDK and Phil Baker from Omega Frequency and Reclaiming the Faith. Guys, if you wouldn't mind, before we open in prayer, actually, you know what, let's open in prayer first and then you can introduce yourselves, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, I come before you now and I thank you so much for this opportunity to come together and edify ourselves as well as edify the body of Christ who will watch this program. And I pray that if anyone that is in the sound of our voices, whether they are watching this program as it's on live, or if they're watching it a year from now, Father, if they do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that they will not wait another second, that today will be the day of salvation. Lord, as you know, we're going to be talking about a very important subject tonight in, in Bible prophecy, which is the reign of Christ. The Uh, that's called the millennial reign, but regardless to where any of us on the program or anybody watching lands on the millennium, the important thing is what your son did for us on the cross. And Father, I thank you so much for sending Jesus. Without Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb, we would none have the ability to be reconciled with you. And Father, I love you, and I pray that you would just bless each and every one of us and guard our hearts and minds with the Holy Spirit and allow us to speak the truth and understand what each of the other ones are saying. Father, I love you, and I ask all these things in the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.
1: Amen. Amen.
0: All right, guys. Uh, introduce yourselves.
1: Okay, I'm BDK, aka the Remnant Shenaniganizer, aka also known as the Holy Troublemaker. I felt left out that I didn't get to have cool names after my my names. I'll oh, come on, break down. I, I appreciate I appreciate your game, sir. And um, I, I realize that my game of that area is lacking. So good on you for challenging me. <laughs>
2: yeah i'm phil baker and um part of omega frequency as well um got my podcast reclaiming the faith um i'm the third wheel so there you go third yeah wheel. but he's the
1: third wheel that's on that it's like the one in the front and me and kurt
2: are the ones uh, on the yeah well
0: one we couldn't do without not at yeah, all Yeah, he's man. the
2: one that's like whoosh, and we're like i'm the spare tire on the bicycle that's what's going on <laughs> All right, well for I had, on, brother. Thanks oh for man,
0: thank you guys so much for coming on because um, you know, we have started two weeks ago a series on the remnant report that is on the millennial reign. Um, you know, when I not long after I started doing the Remnant Report. It's it's been the same show the entire time, but when I first started out it was called Serpents and Doves Radio and then S and D radio. And then finally the remnant report. And uh, around the time I started the remnant report, I started um, a prophecy series on the show called revealing prophecy. And uh, matter of fact, every show that we've done in 2021 has been a revealing prophecy episode, but um, this third edition of the search for the millennium is by far the most important. And, you know, I, I said from the beginning that I wanted to, in the first two episodes, first cover the lies and get those out of the way and then find the truth. And in the first two episodes... You know, we went to the word of God and the, unfortunately, the dispensational view of the millennium is, it it literally is the same. We we were talking off the air about Serenthus. The dispensational view is the view of Serenthus. Now, they didn't come up with it, but they adopted it. You know, all the way back to Darby and, you know, Schofield. But we're not going to talk about dispensationalism at all tonight, other than maybe to um, when we get to the early church writers and anti Nicene fathers, if we happen to mention Sorrenthus. But, um, you know, I I wanted to look at the Old Testament prophecies first, but I don't. We're definitely going to have to look at those prophecies. Um, you know, I, I wrote a, all of them down that I had that I'd gone over, starting with Second Samuel seven ten. There were more that went, you know, farther back, like in Exodus and Deuteronomy. But I don't see how they could possibly be pertaining to the millennium. But anyway, in um, Jeremiah thirty four through eleven and. Zechariah 10, 12 through 14, Micah 4, 2 through 4, Isaiah 32, 1, 17 and 18, 61 and 10, 40, 1 and 2, 35, 8, and 65, 16, 11, 1 through 10, 9, 3, 7. So a lot of them are from Isaiah. Um, there's some from Habakkuk and then another one from Zechariah, but, um, before, um, we go to the scriptures as far as what the Old Testament or New Testament says, uh, I'm gonna have to share my screen because I don't have it in front of me. I, um, I want to, uh, Let's see, I want to go to the article, it's the only way that I can really, I
2: think that's it right there. Yep,
0: the three views of the millennium, okay. it's by a guy named Michael Morrison, and it uh it does not endorse any of the views. It just names them, and, you know, he does add a few things that I didn't write down, but I think he covers the views on the Millennium better than I did, so... What I would like to do now before we look at the early church fathers or the uh, scriptures, I want to let everyone know what the three views of the millennial reign of Christ are and what the beliefs in those views are. And it starts off here and it says, For many Christians, the millennium is a very important doctrine. For some, it's the wonderful world tomorrow. It's an upbeat message about good news for the entire world. A new and far better world will come after Christ returns to put an end to this evil world. The millennium will be a thousand years of righteous rule when people will obey God, when there will be a peace worldwide, when even animals will be at peace with one another. But can we prove it? However, we do not stress the millennium. Why not? Why have we neglected this wonderful, optimistic message about the future? The simple answer is we want to be honest in our use of Scripture. No matter how good particular teachings might make us feel, we do not want to be teaching things that we can't prove from Scripture. For example, how long would the millennium last? Many say that it will be exactly one thousand years. After all, Revelation twenty calls it a thousand years. The word millennium itself means a thousand years in Latin. I just uh, added that; it's not in the, the article. But so why would anybody doubt it? The Book of Revelation is filled with symbols. There are beasts and horns and colors and numbers that are meant to be. That are meant figuratively, not literally. We also see in scripture that the number 1000 is often used as a round number, not an exact number. God owns the, the cattle on a thousand hills, it says, without meaning the exact number. He keeps his covenant for a thousand generations, without meaning exactly 40,000 years in scriptures like this a thousand just means lots and lots so in revelation 20 the question arises is the thousand years meant exactly and literally or is it figured figurative and this book of symbols that often aren't meant literally is this round number thousand meant to be exact From scripture, we cannot prove that the thousand years are meant exactly. We don't have any other passage that gives us a chronology for this phase of God's kingdom. We cannot prove that it isn't figurative, meaning a very long time. That is a plausible interpretive choice. So if we don't want to say things that we can't prove, and we can't prove that the thousand in Revelation 20 has to be literal, then we shouldn't say that that the millennium is exactly 1,000 years. But we can say that the millennium is the time span described in the book of Revelation. That is defensible no matter how anyone interprets the 1,000 years. That statement is biblical and it is true. We can also say that the millennium is the time span during which Christian martyrs reign with Jesus Christ. Revelation tells us that those who are beheaded for Christ reign with him, and it tells us that they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. When do these saints begin to reign? With this question, we get into more disputed questions about the millennium. There are several views about the millennium. Some believe that the millennium begins before Christ returns. Others believe it begins when he returns. Of those who believe it begins before he returns, some believe that there, are, that there will be a special golden age of peace and godliness before Christ returns. Others believe that things will continue much the way they are now until Christ returns of those who believe that the millennium will come after Christ's return, some believe in a special role for israel and others do not some of these views are more literal in their approach to scripture and some are more figurative but none are rejecting what the bible says they are just interpreting it in different ways all of them claim to base their view on scripture it is a matter of interpretation Let me describe the three basic views of the millennium along with their strengths and weaknesses, although I'm only going to describe two, and I will then return to what we can say about the millennium with greatest confidence. The views are named by where they put the return of Christ in relation to the millennium. In the premillennial view, Christ comes before the millennium. In the post-millennial view, Christ comes after the millennium. In the amillennial view, Christ also comes after the millennium. But it is called amillennial or non-millennial because it says there is no special millennium different from what we are already in. This view says that we are already in the time span Revelation 20 is describing that might seem preposterous if you believe that the millennial reign is a time of peace that is possible only after Christ returns. It may seem like those people just don't believe the Bible, but they claim to. In the interest of Christian charity, we ought to try to understand why they think the Bible says this. The premillennial view, let's start by making a case for the premillennial position. We will later critique it. Although, um, instead of critiquing it, letting him critique it in this article, we'll go over that together. But many prophecies in the Old Testament predict a golden age in which people obey God. The lion and the lamb will live together. I thought it was the wolf and the lamb. And a little child will lead them. They will not hurt nor destroy and all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Sometimes it seems as if this future world will be drastically different from the present world. Other times it seems more similar. Sometimes it seems perfect, and sometimes it is mixed with sin. In a passage like Isaiah 2, for example, many people will say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. He will teach us His ways. The word of the Lord will go out from Jerusalem. Nevertheless, there will be nations that need to be rebuked. There will be nations that refuse to obey. People will need plowshares because they need to eat. People will need to eat because they are mortal. There are ideal elements, and there are normal elements. There will be young children, there will be marriage, and there will be death. Daniel tells us that the Messiah Messiah will establish a kingdom that will fit the entire earth, replacing all previous empires. There are dozens of these prophecies in the Old Testament, but we don't need to go through them right now because they are not decisive for our particular question. The Jews understood these prophecies to refer to a future age on earth. They expected the Messiah to come and reign and bring these blessings. Jewish literature before and after Jesus expects a kingdom of God on earth. Jesus' own disciples seem to have expected the same thing. So when Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom of God, we cannot pretend that the Old Testament prophecies did not exist. He was preaching to a people who expected a golden age ruled by a Messiah. When he said kingdom of God, this is what they would have been thinking. Jesus announced that the kingdom was near. Then he left and said he'd be back. It would not be difficult for his followers to conclude that Jesus would bring this golden age when he came back. The disciples asked Jesus when he would restore the kingdom to Israel, Acts verses 1 through 6. They used a similar Greek word to talk about the time of the restoration of all things when Christ returns in Acts 3.21. Jesus must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy scriptures. The disciples expected Old Testament prophecies to be fulfilled in a future age after Christ returned. The disciples didn't preach much about this future golden age because their Jewish audiences were already familiar with the concept. They didn't need to be told about the golden age. They didn't need to know who the Messiah is. So he was the focus of the apostolic message. Many of those non-Jewish believers had attended synagogues before, so they would have known too. The others would learn from the Old Testament after they came to believe in Christ. I'm going to skip forward some. Well, I, I'll read the scripture first. Since the apostolic message focused on the new thing God had done in the Messiah, since it focused on how salvation is possible through Jesus the Messiah, it did not say much about the future kingdom of God. And it is difficult for us to know exactly what they believed about it or how much they knew about it. However, we see a glimpse of what the apostles believed in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is detailing his belief in the resurrection. And in that context, he says something about the kingdom of God that many Christians believe refers to a millennial kingdom after Christ returns. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive but each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, Then when he comes, those who belong to him, verses 20 through 23. All right, since we're going to go over those scriptures later, I'm going to skip down to Revelation 20 here. The Old Testament predicts a golden age of peace and prosperity under God's rule, and Paul says that God's plan proceeds in steps. The real foundation of of the premillennial view is the book of Revelation. This is the book that many believe reveals how all of this comes together. We will examine chapter 20 to see what it says. We can begin by noting that Christ's return is described in Revelation 19. It talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb and the bride has made herself ready. There was a white horse, and the rider's name was the Word of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He leads armies from heaven, and he rules the nations with a rod of iron. He gets rid of the beast and the false prophet and all his enemies. This chapter is describing the return of Christ. Then we come to Revelation 20 verse 1, and it says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. In the literary flow of the book of Revelation, this is something that apparently happens after the return of Christ. What did this angel do, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain? He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The chain is not literal. It represents something that can restrain a spirit being. The devil has restraints placed on him. Would the original readers of Revelation who were being persecuted by Jews and Romans think that Satan had already been bound? Probably not. We were told in chapter 12 that the devil deceives the whole world and wars against the church. This does not sound like he is restrained. He is not restrained until after the beast and the false prophet are defeated. So... After that, it just kind of goes over more of Revelation 20, which um, we've already gone over a lot in verses 1 of 2. Uh, verses, I mean, uh, uh, episode 1 and 2, sorry. Um, there is uh, one thing that I am going to read eventually, but because it's getting late, um, I'm going to uh, stop sharing my screen for a minute, and I am going to... Uh, go to you guys and uh see what uh you want to say would like to say or what you think about what was said about the pre-millennial view
2: pdk why don't you go first man so i guess if you want our
1: my, my question is this so like are we discussing the premillennial uh viewpoint or the amillennial viewpoint right now content.
0: the right now, the premillennial viewpoint that was pretty much uh, given okay. giving the premillennial viewpoint, although I did skip some stuff for time.
1: So you would like my kind of thought on if that because like the yeah, part Revelation, that stuck out to me yeah, the part that stuck out to me. In that thing that you read was the guy questioning whether that 1,000 years was meant to be taken literally or figuratively. Can I say this real quick?
0: Just just because I've read the whole thing, what he was saying was whether it's figurative or literal, uh, that's really not the point. Uh, The point is it is a future time frame that Christ will rule and reign. He actually goes on at the very end and says he believes that it is figurative, I mean, literal, but because he can't prove it from Scripture, he doesn't want to say it definitively.
1: Okay, so like my thing would be, if we were going to look at that claim that you can't prove that that thousand years from Scripture is what it means in the book of Revelation, um, and that it's symbolic or if it's physical, my question to everyone listening tonight that gets kind of confused about this, is when you're rightly dividing the book of Revelation, if you're going to say that the thousand year reign of Christ is figurative as a time frame, then do you also believe that the time the Antichrist reigns is figurative, or is that literal?
0: I understand what you're saying.
1: Um, And then if you go to Daniel, and he says pretty much the same thing, we know that the time that the Antichrist reigns is a literal time frame. And most everyone, whether they're dispensational or not dispensational, kind of believe the same thing about the time frame of the Antichrist rule. What reason would we have to think that that number or that time frame wouldn't be as literal as because you're talking about the antichrist ruling and then his reign coming to an end. And you're talking about Satan being bound for a thousand years, but the rule of Jesus coming to an end, if both of those things are polar opposite flip sides of a coin, why does Satan's antichrist and his ruling, it, why is that more real or concrete than Jesus's ruling and Satan's binding?
0: Um, I guess the only way that I could really um, tell you that for sure would be to uh, to tell you what the part says about amillennialism because it literally, um, you know, it, it deals with the time frame, and it says, um, you know, it says the problems of premillennialism in the case for amillennialism. But bear in mind, this entire um, article was written by a premillennialist. He was just trying to be fair to, you know, all viewpoints. And I just used it as a resource of many resources to do this program. But it says, if premillennialism is so obvious, then why do many Bible-believing Christians believe something else? They are not facing persecution or ridicule on this issue. They have no obvious external pressures to believe in anything else, and yet they do. They claim to believe the Bible, but they claim that the Bible, that the Bible millennium ends rather than begins at Christ's return. As Proverbs 18:17 says, the one who speaks first sounds right until the second one speaks. We can't answer the matter before we hear both sides, or in this case, all three sides. Perhaps it isn't so obvious. The time of Revelation 20, and I'll be honest, this is the thing that got me, because for many, many years, I thought that Revelation was written in a linear fashion a chronological fashion. But it says, for the amillennial view, let's start with this question. What if Revelation 20 isn't chronologically after chapter 19? John saw the vision of chapter 20 after he saw the vision of chapter 19. But what if the vision did not come in the sequence that they will be fulfilled in? What if Revelation 20 takes us to a different point in in time than when chapter 19 ended? What if the vision moves to another area of history without proceeding chronologically? In chapter 12, we can see a clear example of this freedom to move forward or backward in time. Chapter 11 ends with the seventh trumpet. Chapter 12 then takes us back to a woman giving birth to a male child and the woman the woman being protected for 1,260 days. This usually is understood to be the birth of Jesus Christ and the persecution of the church. Yet in the literary flow, this comes after the second trumpet. John's vision has taken him back in time to sketch another part of the story. So the question is, is this happening in Revelation 20 as well? Is this taking us back in time? More specifically, is there evidence in the Bible that This is a better interpretation of what God is revealing. Yes, says those in the amillennial view. There is evidence in scripture that the kingdom of God has already begun, that Satan has already been bound, that there will be only one resurrection, that Christ's return will bring the new heavens and the new earth without any temporary kingdom in between. It is a hermeneutical mistake to make the Book of Revelation with all its symbolism and all its interpretive difficulties contradict what the rest of Scripture says. We need to use the plain scriptures to interpret the obscure one the obscure ones rather than the other way around. In this case, the book of Revelation is the obscure and the controversial material, mainly because of its apocalyptic writing style and the other New Testament verses are clear on the matter. Prophecies are figurative is the byline here. For example, Luke 3, 3-6 tells us how to understand Old Testament prophecies. John the Baptist went into all the country around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. A voice of one calling in the desert prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. When Isaiah wrote about mountains and valleys, roads and deserts, he was speaking in figurative language. Old Testament prophecies were given in figurative language to depict the events of salvation through Christ. Jesus said that the Old Testament prophets were pointing to him. If we see their major focus as some future time span, we are not seeing these prophecies in the light of Jesus Christ. He changes the way we read all the prophecies. He is the focus. He is the true temple. He is the true David. He is the true Israel. His kingdom is the true kingdom. We see in Acts 2... Peter said a prophecy of Joel was being fulfilled in his own day in Acts 2, 16 through 21. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants. When the Old Testament prophets wrote about the last days, they were writing about the age of the church, the age we are in right now. And if there is a thousand-year age to come, then these are not the last days. There cannot be two sets of last days. When the prophet spoke of wonders in heaven above and strange signs in the sun and moon, such prophecies can be fulfilled in figurative ways, unexpected ways, as unexpected as the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on God's people and speaking in tongues. We should not automatically reject highly figurative interpretations of biblical prophecies because that is exactly how the New Testament shows us we can understand the Old Testament prophecies. Old Testament prophecies can be fulfilled either in the church age through figurative fulfillments or fulfilled in an even better way in the new heavens and the new earth. The Old Testament prophets described a kingdom that would never end, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting age. They were not talking about a limited golden age after which the entire earth would be destroyed and rebuilt. The New Testament does not give us a commentary on every Old Testament prophecy. It gives us just a sample of fulfillment that shows that the original writings were in figurative language. They were intended to be figurative. That does not prove the amillennial view, but it removes one obstacle. When we want proof, we need to look at the New Testament. And there we will find the evidence that causes many Christians to believe the amillennial view. And it gives more scriptures, but I'm going to... Uh, stop reading that for
2: now can i jump in a little bit
0: absolutely
2: awesome man i really like in that article when it was talking about how they see jesus is the true temple he's the true david he's the true kingdom and all of those things and so it said to look at the um if i'm remembering correctly and correct me if i'm wrong but if we want to look at the more obscure passages of scripture we need to view them in light of the very literal ones right and so he was kind of showing different shadows of christ from the old testament that christ reveals so when i was when i was hearing that it was making me think of some different things like paul calls jesus the new adam right that word adam means man one of Mm -hmm. jesus favorite terms for himself is son of man right? right um so i was thinking about genesis and when we look at Genesis 5, you got Adam, the original man. He lives 930 years. When you look at the son of Adam, the son of man, he lives 912 years. You've got Jared living 962, Methuselah living 969. You've got Noah. Noah prefigures Christ in so many ways, right? So many ways. And he lives 950 years. There's disagreement about when David was born. You know, some people have him being born in the 11th century. Some people have him being born, sorry, in the 10th century. Some people in the 9th. You know, there's, there's disagreement. Was he born around 950, 1050, somewhere in there? Who knows? But his kingdom, if he, when he starts to reign, it's around 1,000 years. And then you have this dragon from Revelation 12 coming to eat the male child right? Jesus being born. Well, clearly that's what it's talking about. So King David's rule was around a thousand years, not quite though, somewhere around there. Why do we have all of these people, the original people, up until Noah, the destruction, living around a thousand years? Is there something, and I'm not saying there is, and this is not, you know, any kind of proof, but it's just looking at this idea that the biblical writers used, like, Like you, you're clearly hitting on and that that there's something about these early people in Genesis and in the Old Testament, these heroes that prefigure Christ. Like Isaac, the biblical writers never make mention of Isaac being sacrificed as a type of Jesus dying on the cross. That's not in the Old or in the New Testament at all. And yet it's so absolutely obvious to us. Right. I mean, it's, it's like right on the nose. He's on Mount Moriah. God will provide all that stuff, right? It's such a clear prefigure of Christ. So is there something that God was trying to teach us in these years that the first men lived, but were not quite able to to attain? Is there something that God was trying to teach us in the Davidic rule up until Christ, which was good for a little bit, but then got messed up, right? Because he wasn't a perfect king. Is there something that God's trying to prefigure there for us?
0: Well, I definitely hear what you're saying, and, you know, I've told you guys, and I've also said it in both the first episodes, the entire reason that I wanted to do this, um, you know, it wasn't to prove one view over the other, except for the fact that I wanted to know myself which way was right once and for all, because you know, like I told BDK when I first did the program Jewish Dreams, although the information in it was dead on as far as dispensationalism goes, you know, I I did it prematurely because I, I thought that I was, I was misremembering. I thought that it was a program that I actually did where I presented the information, but it wasn't. It was one where I played an audio from somebody else. And um, I should have, you know, researched what was said in the audio before I played it. Um, you know, that way when PBK challenged me on it, I would have been able to answer his challenges instead of, but I'm glad I didn't, you know, it was the way God wanted it because that's what sent me, you know, down and studying it deeper. And then, like I told you, when I, um, was introduced to David Berceau and uh, Kingdom Theology, that's what really threw me for a loop. Like we're definitely ruling and reigning with Christ in some form or another. And um, I, I do know that um, as far as the Talmud and the um, rabbinical, in rabbinical Judaism, like the writings are concerned, they are looking for this future messianic kingdom. We would call it, you know, the tribulation, the rule of the Antichrist. And the one thing that keeps bothering me is two things. One, I can't find anywhere where Christ talks about the millennium. That's why I wanted to hear, you know, what BDK had to say. Um, about you know reading the scriptures and i can find it through um, exegesis but not eisegesis and also um, the fact that this is so usually if the masses believe something usually what the masses believe are wrong i mean at least here in america what the masses believe christianity is all about You know, once saved, always safe, grace over uh, love, faith, relationship. Usually they're wrong. And that's what's got me, you know, wanting to study this out.
1: Yeah, brother. And I think you're really smart in what you did, to be completely honest with you, because you had a question and you're like, something about the official narrative just does not jive. And man, I, if we're all honest, all three of us can be like, there are times when we've been trying to figure out eschatology, where the official narrative does not hold water, it does not jive. You did something really smart, though, man. You, uh, The one thing in this article that you read was he said, if the literal thousand year reign of Christ thing was legit and how come so many people have different interpretations he's using this if it was such a lockdown then why would everybody all this time later have all these different variances of opinion and it's really hard for some of us even myself man to look and debate these sort of things on well what is is the thousand year literal is it not what happens during the thousand years because we're looking at it like at least 2,000 years beyond when John wrote it, you know? And so to say, hey, man, I'm questioning this because I wasn't around when John wrote it. And and this guy in the article is like, how would we ever know? Well, we know because the people, John wrote this thing and it's a significant fact that People had direct contact with John, right? Polycarp was John's most favorite disciple. Jesus gives this dude a stellar pass. He was the angel of the church of Smyrna, historically. Like, he's the one pastor that Jesus takes time out and says, yo, your theology is cool. I got no rebukes for you whatsoever. And he yeah, trains I knew people. He was-
0: knew he was the bishop of Smyrna but you so you believe that that's the actual angel of Smyrna that it's not actually talking about actual angels
1: no because like angels can't get like every church right is is told that they have to change things every church is told that they have to repent of certain things except for two churches angels aren't in charge of men repenting angels aren't in charge of kicking out Jezebel's um all this other stuff this is the pastor um It's cool the way you did this was you're like, you know what, I'm going to go research what the early church fathers said. Because those were the one people that would know. Like you take what Jesus says, you take what the apostles say, and then you say, well, if if there's any question as to what these two people meant, let's ask the people who were trained hands-on the way that Jesus trained John. Can I ask you one
0: question about that? Was Polycarp the bishop when John wrote Revelation? Was yep. he the bishop of Smyrna? Almost there's added. a strong case
2: to be made for that. He was yeah. at least a disciple of John, but there's a, yeah, there's a strong case. I knew he was a disciple. I just didn't yeah. know. Yeah there's a, a, yeah, there's a strong case. We don't know the date of his birth, but there's a, since he lived at least 82 years, like there, there's a strong case that could be made that he was the bishop there. He would have been a younger guy like Timothy, you know, leading a church like in Ephesus. Um, but yeah, it's possible.
1: Yeah, and what you did that was so smart, man, was you went back to the source. You said, what did dudes like Papias say? Papius was legitimately described as a hearer of John and a companion of Polycarp, right? So, like, he knew John personally. Barnabas, right? We, know who, we all know who Barnabas was. He writes on this sort of stuff. Um, Irenaeus is a, is a disciple of Polycarp, and Polycarp could have called him out and said, no, man, Irenaeus is teaching heresy. Like we know what time the book of Revelation was written, because uh Uranius tells us we know it was like 96 AD. And so you went back and you're like, Well, I'm gonna start my quest for truth with the best set of commentaries, not the not the Schofield commentaries, not the John MacArthur commentaries. You went and you were like, What are the people that hung out with John? Cause like if they had a question, hey, is this a millennial thing like a thousand years who better to ask than the guy who was your disciple like polycarp was discipled the same way timothy was discipled by paul the same way jesus was discipling his disciples they knew exactly what john meant in the book of revelation and i think what would be really cool is if we let maybe phil talk a little bit about some of that research that you found out some of the early church fathers and and how they interpreted these
2: mysterious passages? Well, you had a guy named Papias, right, you were talking about, and um, he is so well-respected by the early church. Unfortunately, the vast majority of his writings are lost. We only have little fragments. However, we do have different uh, early Christians at times quoting his works, so they were still around in in the early Christians' day, and one of those Christians that quote Papias is Eusebius. You know, he's a fourth century historian. And um, he says, quote, Papias says there will be a millennium after the resurrection from the dead when the personal reign of Christ will be established on the earth. You have Justin Martyr in 160. He says, I and others who are right minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will be built. For Isaiah spoke in that manner concerning this period of a thousand years. He also brought up Irenaeus, Irenaeus, a disciple of Polycarp. He doesn't get at the literal a thousand years, but you can see basically he's hitting on some of these same points. So I'll, I'll read some of this, okay? And he's going to cite Papias as well. So if you know what Papias believed... Papias was a companion of Polycarp, Irenaeus, you know, disciple of Polycarp. So he's most likely carrying the same tradition when he quotes Papias. All right. So the predicted blessing, therefore, belongs unquestionably to the times of the kingdom when the righteous will bear rule after their rising from the dead. All right. That's kind of coming back to this idea that we rule after the resurrection. It's also the time when the creation will bear fruit with an abundance of all kinds of food, having been renovated and set free. Kind of like what Paul talks about in uh, Romans 8. And all the animals will feed on the vegetation of the earth. They will become peaceful and harmonious among each other, and these will be in perfect subjection to man. And these things are borne witness to in the fourth book of the writings of Papias. This is obviously something that's lost in history, but He's citing that and he says in the fourth books of the writings of Papias, the hero of John and companion of Polycarp. Isaiah says the wolf will also feed with the lamb and the leopard will take his rest with the kid. I'm quite aware that some persons attempt to apply these words to the situation of savage men, both from different nations and various habits who come to believe for when they have believed they act in harmony with the righteous so let me pause there and explain a little bit what he's saying he's saying that some christians and these are people like justin martyr have talked about like these passages of the wolf dwelling with the lamb uh from isaiah and from isaiah 2 about like beating swords in the plowshares that this is like a figurative thing of this peace that is being brought by the christians by being willing to die rather than to kill all right so yeah. Uh, Irenaeus is is kind of hitting on this, and he's also talking about how there is a figurative nature to the wolf lying down at the lamb, because he says this is presently true with regard to some men coming from various nations to the harmony of the faith. So he's like, there is like a figurative idea to that wolf and lamb thing happening now. Nevertheless, in the resurrection of the just it applies to those animals mentioned and it sh- it is right that when the creation is restored all the animals should obey and be subject to man and revert to the food originally given by god so he's saying there's there's going to be this millennial reign when the animals will actually be in subjection and like you know the child can play with the cobra he's saying like that's that's literally going to happen though there's a shadow of it happening right now Tertullian says we do confess that a kingdom is promised to us upon the earth after the resurrection for a thousand years in the divinely built city of Jerusalem let down from heaven. I know if you've gotten into Origin before, and um, Origin basically says that this this millennial reign and the quote is like super long. I can send it if I need to, but you may have already hit on it before. But he does call christians millennialists who are desiring this future fulfillment of the kingdom of god um and he's basically saying that there is we're, we are in a reign of christ right now but the passages that seem like figurative like oh, that may seem literal like wolf flying down with the lamb those have a um a more present fulfillment going on there's a deeper understanding he's kind of he's kind of flipping on a, on its head what Irenaeus says like it is it, it may be true but there's a there's a deeper meaning to the the wolf laying with the lamb or yeah now then you have people like Victorinus in 260 and Methodius in 290 that really promote like a non-literal Thousand year reign of Christ. Um, but those are really the only two that I could find that are like very blunt. There is no literal thousand year reign of Christ in the Anti Nicene Fathers. You pick back up with Lactantius in three hundred four to three thirteen, we're not exactly sure. And he says the dead will rise again to reign with God for a thousand years, when he will have destroyed unrighteousness and executed his great judgment. He will be occupied among men for a thousand years, and he will rule them with a just command. After Christ's coming, the righteous will be collected from all the earth. When the judgment has been completed, the sacred city will be planted in the middle of the earth in which God himself, the builder, may dwell together with the righteous. Now you do have Augustine, and this will be the last thing that I say, and these quotes are like crazy long, so I'm not going to read them all. I'll just kind of sum up um, what they talk about in the year, it's between 411 and 412, he starts writing uh, his magnum opus, which is the city of God. And um, this comes right after 411, when the, the Goths under Ulrich sacked Rome. And this caused a drastic change in many of Augustine's teachings. Like he begins to teach a more deterministic view, like like, think hyper-Calvinist view of sovereignty, where God controls everything. And it's actually Stoic stuff, okay? And he was a Stoic for several years, that philosophy. And he also was a Manichean. And you see Manichean philosophy begin to creep up in Augustine's beliefs again, even though from 386 to four eleven, you see him actually fighting against it. So there's something that happens that shifts in his brain when the Goths, Sack Rome. He thinks something is not right. And so, one of the things that he begins to advocate is that there is no literal thousand year reign of Christ. And he kind of makes fun of the people that do hold this opinion. And he says that he used to hold that opinion, but now he doesn't. Um, and we got to understand about Augustine a couple of things as well. He never learned Hebrew, and he only began to learn Greek about 15 years after writing The City of God. So he was basing his interpretation. This is like the main scholar of Christianity. to So many people did not know Greek. <laughs> he couldn't translate the Bible for himself. And this is the main guy Even that— Even more I, than Eusebius? What's that? I said he was the main scholar even more than Eusebius? I, I, yeah, I'm talking about now looking at uh, you know, the way like seminaries view the early church. like They're not a lot of times going to start with the writings of people like Polycarp. They go straight to Augustine because you have Luther, who is an Augustinian monk, and Calvin, who said that all of Augustine's... Sorry, if you want to know what Calvin believed, you just have to read the writings of Augustine. All right? And so he begins to really put forward this idea um, in, in, mass, in mass quantity that there, we're in this reign of Christ right now because Rome rules. And it's, it's illegal, basically, to, be, to not be a Christian. And that happened in 380 with uh, Emperor Theodosius's uh, decree, basically. So, you know, Augustine becomes a Christian in 386. Why is that? I don't know. I'm actually going to do a two-part series on Augustine. Those are going to be the next two podcasts I do. So they're going to be pretty long, pretty detailed stuff. But that's basically where the church as a whole, with Augustine, begins to view a lot of the early Christian teachings about what the kingdom of God is. They begin to view it in a contrary way to what the earliest Christians believed. Like, Augustine begins to heavily justify the torture and killing of people who disagree with him, which is something, of course, Martin Luther did yep. and John Calvin did, right? Like, he begins to treat the Sermon on the Mount, this is, this is after 411, after that sack of Rome, he begins to treat the Sermon on the Mount more allegorically, you know, and not seriously. Uh all kinds of kingdom teachings, basically that we would call orthodox, Augustine begins to call heresy, and things that Augustine calls heresy, the early Christians called orthodox, and not all not all at at by any means, but many and uh, well, i'm not I'm not going to say if I can just get this last thing in you're fine i don't i don't think the early church at all viewed this as a matter to divide i don't view their view of the millennium the same way i view their belief on non-resistance and the reason is from the first century with with barnabas with polycarp with clement of rome with ignatius going all the way to even the council of nicaea you see um them being against the christians using violence toward other people everybody there is no exception from Christian teachers, no exception. There's a lot of disagreement on the millennium, how it's going to play out. There's some similarities, but there's difference, and they're okay with that. That's one thing about those first those Christians of the first 300 years. In in some areas, they are like 100 percent. In the areas that matter, like how we live and what we believe about Jesus, well, um, I'm okay with that yeah absolutely but in the areas where it's like we're dealing with prophecy prophecy is a lot better you know viewed in hindsight you know Mm
1: -hmm. it's a lot
2: in these kind of areas they've got liberty there except with like certain essentials that you do believe christ is going to reign right and he is coming back and he is going to put an end to evil now how that all gets played out there's there's room in the body of christ that's the way they they kind of viewed this area
0: yeah and i I'm glad they didn't divide over that. And I don't think that we should either, as long as, um, you know, we agree on the the core issues like they did, then, uh, I don't think we should divide over what one believes about the millennium versus what the other believes, um, or whether you're pre-wrath or, you know, post-trip, um, I do believe that dispensationalism completely sets people up for the great following away. Yep. And that's oh, why yeah. I'm so against it. But, yep. you know, I, I have brothers and sisters who believe, who are dispensational and who believe in a pre trib rapture and they, they're not going to change their view unless, you know, the Holy spirit changes it for them. Um, One thing, and I said this last week, one thing that I have noticed about people who are in dispensational churches and people who are that I've known who are involved in cults is they, no matter how much truth you present them with from scripture, they just cannot hear it because for whatever reason, that's not more important than whatever pastor or personality they listen to has taught them.
1: Yeah. Amen. Um, I, uh,
0: I know that a BDK um, was going to, uh, he wanted to look, and I do too, want to look at the, the scriptures. Um, and I agree with you, you know, like we were talking off air that as far as the millennium goes, that we need to look at the Old Testament prophecies. Um, Although I think that no matter what part of scripture you are looking at, I think that they need to, you know, be looked at not through the lens of any um, interpretations of man, no matter what that doctrine is, but through the doctrine of Christ, but I do want to ask one thing, and that is, can we look at Revelation 20? Because we really haven't looked at it uh, before we look at the other uh, parts of Scripture. Um, I know that uh, when I was reading that um, article, the guy was talking about how it, you know, as far as the amillennial point of view, how it may not... uh, come right after in a linear fashion right after revelation 19 and the one thing i will say that i think he's hitting on there is that you know in the original there weren't these chapters and i think that the chapters confuse a lot of people um not just in this but in scripture period you know people that's how people are able to cherry pick scriptures to make doctrines yep but um in Revelation 20, uh, and I think it was episode one when I pointed this out, it, um, it's like it's, it's reading a list of things that have happened or, or that has already happened. It doesn't matter if it's happened back starting in the time of Christ or it started happening during the tribulation. And Revelation 20, starting in uh, verse 1, it starts off reading things that have happened. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. And set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And then verse four says, and I saw thrones and they that sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And I'm going to stop right there a second, although, well, no, I'm going to read verse that. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea, Um, and I want to ask you a question about, um, verse eight in just a little while, but first I just want to say this, what I said in, uh, I think it was, uh, episode one. And that is that there are two ways that this can be viewed in my opinion, reading it. Um, when I read it, uh, you know, from as long as I can remember studying prophecy, when I read this, when I got to um, the second half of verse four, where it says, uh, uh, and they, trying to find it. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. um, That to me, looks like it's either saying the same thing that the rest of it is saying, which, you know, first the devil is bound, then uh, he sees the thrones, and then it sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and he saw the souls of those who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark, Their foreheads are in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So when I read that in the first episode, the way I saw it was it was saying that they, that those people reigned, lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And to me, that can be looked at in... uh, past tense I guess a past tense version and a future forward tense version as in the the ones who were beheaded for the witness of Christ and for the word of God which did not worship the beast could represent people from you know the first century church all the way up through the tribulation um And then it could also represent just those people in the tribulation who are beheaded and, um, you know, the saints who will futurely rule and reign with Christ.
1: Yeah, I... Here's what I would like to do. So in this narrative, regardless of whether you feel this is part of the narrative or a completely separate vision. You have certain things happening. You have Satan being bound for a thousand years. So a thousand years is mentioned once. Then there's a first resurrection of the dead. We would call that the rapture. Um, that happens. Those people that, that come alive at the first resurrection, and we know that it's tied to Revelation 20 because that's when Jesus returns, right? And at his return, we're resurrected. So the people that are resurrected live and rule for a thousand years. Jesus rules for a thousand years, it says. We co-rule with him. And then at the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed. I think we can find this exact narrative in the New Testament. And if you would allow me... um. I would love to prove that to you. Okay. So this, and I'm going to try to do it historically and scripturally and reasonably. Okay. So those are going to be my three touchdowns. So we see that in this idea of Jesus ruling and reigning on earth, that He is going to be coming to earth. He's going to be sitting on the throne of David, and he is going to be judging the nations. We know that that's going to happen. We can read that in Matthew 25, 31, right? It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's the return of Christ. He destroys his enemies with the brightness of his coming. When he comes back on that white horse and the bright word comes out of his mouth, and all the angels are with him, like, even Enoch says, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Jude quotes it. He will sit on his glorious throne. Now, that's interesting because Jesus now has a throne. And that's going to be so important. We see that that throne is here. And we see that we also have thrones for that thousand years. Okay? Right now, Jesus, and this is, this is kind of interesting Because right now there is an earthly kingdom, but there's also a spiritual kingdom. Jesus is king over a spiritual heavenly kingdom, right? He's ruling an invisible realm. But this passage and this one in Revelation and the one that I just read in Matthew 25 is talking about when Jesus is literally judging the earth now. Okay. So he, Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels okay. with him, er, er. he will sit on his glorious throne. There is a throne, that's the throne of David. Um, is this good for which uh, verse it was Matthew 25, 31. Okay. So Jesus is sitting on an earthly throne now and he has transitioned this power. Currently, right now, he is the king of a spiritual kingdom. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. okay. But his throne is not this throne, the throne of David. He is in heavenly places. He is a high priest making intercession. And he is directing his church. His church has no authority on this earth other than the spiritual kingdom. The authority that we have is ambassadors of reconciliation and a royal priesthood. We have been made a royal priesthood, a royal kingdom to God, but yet our reign is future and initially upon the earth, which is what we read in Revelation 20, and I'll prove this to you. So if you read 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim the virtues of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're not kings. We are ambassadors in this passage. We're also a priesthood of intercessory warriors. We are called to participate with Jesus in the spiritual dimension because that is where he has the authority of kingship right now. In Revelation 5.10, Right, it says, and he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Revelations five ten. Now that's a future promise. When he reads the the things to the seven churches, he says, if you overcome, and you endure until the end, I will make you kings and priests to our God. And where do we reign at that point? On earth, which is what we see in Revelation twenty. Okay, but that's a future event. And I'll prove that even more in depth. Our inheritance is to rule with Christ on the earth. The meek will inherit the earth. That's our inheritance. But that inheritance only happens when Jesus takes his throne. And he has not taken that throne yet. And we will see that in a couple seconds. Now, if you read Ephesians 2, right? We were made alive with Christ. We were dead in our trespasses. It is by grace we have been saved God raised us up and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. That's talking about a position. We're not like literally seated up in there. And that doesn't mean that we rule on earth. We participate in that intercessory work of Christ. We have the power in the kingdom of God to take on spiritual things. But the physical manifestation of that, if you read the next verse, says that in order in the coming ages, the coming ages, that's talking about this in Revelation 20, we might display the surpassing riches of his grace demonstrated by his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. What is that surpassing grace? What is that demonstration that God is merciful? It's that the meek has inherited the earth. It's that Jesus had redeemed a bride, a company of people, both Jews and Gentiles and saved them one new man in Christ. Now, we read this. It says that there was a first resurrection, and then there was a second resurrection. Right, First Corinthians fifteen twenty four through twenty six, Paul says, and then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after has he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the great white right throne judgment. The last okay. enemy that is destroyed is death. Just this whole line, because this is going to become a abundant. I just want to ask you something yeah, real quick, because it'll, it'll help me
0: understand you a lot better. Do you believe that um, that all will be raised at the same time, believers and non-believers?
1: Uh, no. No, no, no. There's a first resurrection and a second resurrection, according uh, to this uh, passage. And that's the way yeah. the early church understood it too. Um, and, and give me a couple more seconds to prove this out, and then you'll see it. It's clearly his day from Scripture and Jesus' teaching. So Christ rules in the millennium until the great right throne judgment. That's where death itself is finally vanquished. That's the second death. Then he places his kingdom under the Father's kingdom. Yet he continues to rule in this eternal state, There's a new heaven and a new earth. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26 that I read does not mean that the end of Jesus's earthly kingdom ends after the thousand years. It's just the initial marker. But rather from here on forward in the story, the unity of the Godhead is now complete. He reigns with the Father as the eternal Son. There's no longer two thrones. This is so important. One is the Messianic throne, that's David's throne, and the other is the Father's throne, as our Lord indicated in Revelation 3.21. In the final kingdom, there is only going to be one throne after the new heavens and the new earth, after that thousand years. And that will be, if you read it in Revelation 22.3, the throne of God and the Lamb. Those two thrones become combined. Now I'm going to show you explicitly from scripture, and I'm going to prove that point to you explicitly from scripture right now. So, let me go skip ahead in my notes for a second. I'm going to read you three passages that are going to historically prove that Jesus is not ruling yet. So the, the amillennial kingdom says that Jesus is ruling here on the earth too, that his rule is, is complete, that Satan is bound, and that all things have been in this state of restoration, and then he comes back. I'm going to show you from Jesus' own mouth that that's not possible. So, first passage is this. Their disciples are on the mount. Jesus is about ready to go up into heaven. They said, Lord, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel?
0: This is in yeah. Acts
1: 1, 6 through 7. And Jesus replies, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed in his own authority, which is an obvious callback to the return of the Lord, the resurrection, the first resurrection, and the return of Christ, right? Because no man knows the day or hour but by the Father. So he's speaking of this end time event. He says, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and into the ends of the earth. So basically Jesus is saying, it's not up to you to worry about right now when God is going to restore unto Israel or restore unto the world, this Davidic throne, this messianic throne, because they were like, Hey, you're leaving. Wait, 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 wait. Every Every, including us, every believer in the Messianic promise believes that you're going to sit on the throne of David. When's that going to happen? And he's like, that'll happen. Not right now. When God sends me again,
2: it'll happen. Right now. Jump in real
1: quick?
2: Yeah. Go I, ahead. Jump in real quick? It's, it's, I think it's really important to combine with the Great Commission for Matthew 28, because in Matthew 28, it's, it's before the Acts 1 Happens when he's saying all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, now you go bring right. that authority, exercising that authority for me. All right, it's very similar. This is probably going to be the last thing I say before I got to go in a few minutes. So I just want to put this in there, something to consider. The parable that Jesus tells from Luke 19. In Luke 19:11, he goes to tell a parable. He's on his way to Jerusalem, right? He's already he's he's passing through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he says. Um, because they supposed that the kingdom of God was about to appear immediately, he said, "A noble man is a person of noble birth, right? So he's like a he's of kingly birth. He goes off to a distant country to receive royal power for himself and then return. So he's going on his long journey, which is him going away where he gets the throne to, and he comes back to return. When he and and he puts his servants in charge to rule for him, though so they're not." totally ruling right because he's coming back to rule once he has that authority again and you know it's it's the parable where they get 10 10 means 5 and that that thing when he comes back then he exercises judgment over those those servants get judged based on how what they did with his stuff so it's just something to consider there now, you know you're not going to build a whole theology off a parable but i think it's just one more thing that kind of fits into what bdk is saying there
1: Yeah, and that authority that we're given, the the talents and these things that Phil's talking about, those are kingdom talents. All these parables are parables of the kingdom, and these are talking about the spiritual kingdom, right? Here's the interesting thing. We, We skip ahead a couple chapters in the book of Acts, right? The disciples—they're not ruling yet, but they're exercising the spiritual authority that Jesus has as the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, which is a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. This is why this is so important, man, because this is how every dominionist starts yeah. off. I've been given—I've been given power on Earth, and it's my responsibility to use my talents in the five uh, or the seven mountain mandate and the seven areas of culture. But that's how this starts off. When you have an understanding classically of of when we rule and reign and and who rules and reigns and how this all plays into it, then we have a greater understanding of the kingdom of God. So Jesus goes up into heaven, right? Uh, Peter and John heal a guy. They get called in front of the court and they're going to preach a sermon. And in Acts 3.21... It talks about Jesus going up into heaven. It says, whom heaven will receive until the times of restitutions of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. That's all the millennial kingdom passages. And I can prove that. The times of restitution of all things, that noun that's rendered restitution, apotheosis, does not elsewhere occur in the whole New Testament, but the verb is from something that's derived about eight times. It means to properly restore a thing to its former situation, or it's used like a dislocated or severed limb put back into the body. And that's what the Old Testament prophets wrote about. It's talking about this time where this very Edenic estate is being restored to man. It's like all creation like, is groaning for the Son of God to come back and change the earth. Jesus will be in heaven until the time of restoration. And that means until the time of a new heaven and a new earth, until the time of the millennial kingdom, which the prophets spoke about. That's what they're referring back to. All but of these you millennial don't,
0: kingdoms, You don't think that the millennial kingdom is the same as the new
1: heaven or new earth, right? No. But, like, what he is saying. Because is, the
0: restoration of all things can't
1: happen until the new heaven or new earth. But see, the thousand-year millennial kingdom is the first chapter of that. It's the beginning. Okay. It's the beginning of it. So you're looking at a story. Chapter one is thousand-year reign of Christ. These are, if you're looking at what you said in Revelation 20, that whole chapter starts off and progresses to the very end part, right? I agree. I so, what, well, so what? so he's in heaven until the time of the restoration of all things, meaning that heaven holds him till God sends him back, right, to rule and reign and start that process off. And that will result in the restitution of all things, that whole time frame of Revelation 20. Now check this out, though. This is so amazing.
2: Hey, can I say one more thing and then yeah, I got to go? I gotta yeah and
0: before phil goes before you wrap it up bdk um before you tell me that one more thing i want to say one thing because phil's not going to be here to hear it so go ahead phil
2: okay yeah i was just going to say uh and and you know we could be wrong about this i'm 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 okay with that i sort of put that out there i could be wrong you know we we don't know in part we don't prophesy in part when the perfect comes that'll be done away with right I yeah. it's like I know right now that there are things that I'm wrong about that I don't know I'm wrong about, but I know I'm right. wrong about things. So, you know what I'm saying? Man. So like we're all just trying to sharpen each other with that's all right. yep. but, that's oh, the man. reason
0: I asked you guys on, man.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so it's smart but, but that but I,
1: everyone is searching for that truth. With because if you're teachable, that's the important part, man. That you're willing to keep searching until you find an answer.
0: The minute you think you've got the corner on truth is the minute, in my opinion, you're
2: doomed. Right. Yeah. The, the way I look at the beginning of the millennial reign, where I think it happens, where we see a picture of that happening is in revelation 11. Yeah. All right. When, when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, there's loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. He will reign forever and ever. All right. That's, But I think that's the beginning of the eternal reign of Christ, which also begins that first chapter of a thousand years. But even, but in that thousand years, the first little bit, the first chapter of the thousand years is him warring against the beast and the false prophet. So there's still evil, even at the very beginning of what we think of as the millennium or what I think of as the millennium. So he's still, he's still doing work even there. It it's a process. So but dude, thank you so much for having us on. And I know y'all are gonna keep talking. I'm gonna make sure I watch what y'all say. Just I gotta wake up at five. Mm-hmm. So brother, hey, thank I you. I do so too. Much, I gotta bro. wake
0: up at five too. But you know, I, I uh, yeah, you, I'm kind of a Very, sissy. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, it's okay. All uh, right, brother. I'm glad that you came on and uh, I look forward to uh, being able to finish it and you being able to see the the finished product.
2: Absolutely. And anytime you want to have us back on to keep chatting, absolutely. Yeah, All right, brother. Grace and peace. All
1: God right, bless you, bro.
2: So let me read
1: this final verse. This one's gonna blow your mind because I remember the first time I read this, theology overload. And it fits in so clear with this passage. If you go to Revelation 3:21, once again we have this future thing, right? Those who endure to the end, those who overcome. This is a promise made for people if they overcome, right? It says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. That's Jesus, right? That's exactly what's... Yeah, Revelation 321. Got it. To him who overcomes... I will grant to sit with me on my throne. We know what, exactly what that throne means, right? It's that throne of David. He talked about coming in the power of the glory in Matthew 25. He says,
0: Which is where I want to go back to when yeah. you're
1: finished. Yeah, yeah. We can go back to when you're finished. It says, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Okay. This is super I, important because. I agree. Like, look at, but look at look at look at this in case the audience doesn't catch this for a second. Okay, Jesus says, "If you overcome, you can sit with me on my throne." Future, as I overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne, so past or present, right? This verse is not only important because it shows the high degree of authority that believers will have with Jesus in Revelation 20, but it also indicates something very important. Okay, And this is the dividing line. When was this written? And this was written in approximately A.D. 95. This is when Jesus wrote these words. We know this because... Irenaeus literally comes out and says, "In the year <laughs> uh, A.D. 95, under the reign of Domitian, right, John wrote these words, and and he then he just starts talking about what John wrote. So we know that in A.D. 95, Jesus spoke these words, and according to Jesus, out of the mouth of the Messiah Himself, two things we can understand: He was not on His own throne yet." He plainly says it. We are not on any sort of throne yet. He plainly says it. That's why amillennialism doesn't hold water. Historically, it can't. Because otherwise, you have to say that when Jesus rose from the dead, bound Satan for the thousand years, then he began to rule and reign. Jesus doesn't say, that's not Jesus' testimony in AD 96 or 95. So you that's don't not, think Jesus is ruling and reigning now? He says it. I, I'm ruling. not talking, well, well, I'm he, not talking he, in he's a
0: millennial he's sense. Ruling,
1: he's ruling and reigning in a spiritual sense in, in, a, in the heavenly kingdom. Because Jesus is standing before Pilate and says, I am a king. You say I am a king. I am a king for this reason I was born, to be a king. Right? But my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my people would fight for it. But there is coming a time when his kingdom will be of this world, where he will sit upon the throne of David, and he will physically rule and reign with his believers for a thousand years. Look, I got to tell you, man, I... I... And Jesus says it right in Revelation 3.21. He says that you will be able to sit with me on my throne, but right now... I'm sitting I'm sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is he is saying he doesn't even have his throne yet. I agree with that. My thing is this,
0: and it's not whether Jesus is gonna have a future throne and whether we're gonna sit on him with it or sit on, you know, our thrones or however you want to put it. It's does that happen in this um, golden age on earth or in the New heavens and new earth. Now,
1: I can tell okay you why it, it, I can tell you why it has to happen after the okay. return of Jesus and not before. Right.
0: Well will you hear these scriptures before you do? Sure, sure. Okay. All right, let's go back to where you started from, Matthew twenty-five. Okay. All right. Uh you stopped where you read twenty five thirty-one no uh uh I don't know. let's see uh, twenty five is the parable of the ten virgins, okay um, trying to find where you stop that do you remember
1: yeah i read matthew twenty five thirty one so when the Son of man oh, shall come in oh, his glory, oh. and all the holy angels with him. Then shall he sit die. upon the throne of his glory. So it's a future okay. event. Future event. And then, event. It, I, and I then agree. it says, "And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from his goats." From the goats. That's also a future event because that hasn't
2: happened agree. yet.
0: Exactly. But can we agree that the sheep and the goats are believers and non-believers?
1: Uh, there's two th- There's two schools of thought on that right it well, is there, it's either like physical in. nations it's either physical nations and that would tie back to um the prophecies of the old testament i believe that they are the nations the good nations and the bad nations the believer right. and the unbeliever but that's a future event that hasn't happened yet that
0: won't oh, happen until he returns i agree, return. I, agree. Yeah. I agree um you know it just but here's it, the uh, thing
1: it's it clearly says that the Son of Man isn't going to sit upon that throne till he returns,
0: yeah, I agree. I agree that. I agree there. It says, then shall the king in thirty four, then shall the king say to them on his right hand, "Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation mm-hmm. of the world. So we're talking about a future kingdom, for I right. was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink, I was a stranger, and you took me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee, or when saw thee sick in or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, you have done it unto me. Mm-hmm. Forty-one says, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angel- angels. That's why I see that as something happening, you know, at, at one time. Um, Now, that really doesn't affect my belief as far as
1: the millennium goes. I just see. um, I, I see exactly what you're saying, Jeremy. And that's a really great point. Seriously. Because you're like, wait a minute. It seems like it seems like these nations like that's speaking of the white throne judgment, the unbelievers, if they don't get resurrected till the end of the thousand years, how is that happening? But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the nations, the sheep goats and the the false or the true Christians and then the nations. So, like, if you believe that the millennial kingdom is going to be centered in Jerusalem, as the Bible says it will be, but that city will be completely reserved for the bride of Christ, made up of no, all redeems. You you have to be talking about
0: Old Testament prophecies when you say the Bible says that the Messianic kingdom will be centered in Jerusalem.
1: Well, no, it says it in Revelations, right? It comes down. It lands well, right uh, in
0: Jerusalem. That's the New heaven. Jerusalem.
1: Jerusalem. Jerusalem.
2: Yeah, and, and the, new the
1: Old man. Testament. The Old Testament makes that abundantly clear. And you also have to... I mean, as much as the Talmud and all these other places are saying it's Jerusalem, there's a reason why they're saying it's Jerusalem. It's a reason why the disciples, right, who were not part of any of the Talmudic stuff were like, hey, how come you're no, not establishing before. the throne of David in Jerusalem before you go? Like every person who worth assault, even just common students of the of, of Torah would tell yeah. you. That the temple, the new temple in the millennial kingdom, the, the throne where Jesus rules, he's sitting on David's throne. He's the son of David. It's a messianic promise that that city is reserved for the saved and the sanctified alone. I agree. And it, will be, um, it will be in Jerusalem 100%. The Bible witnesses that.
0: Um, the, the Old Testament prophecies that have to do um, with... Israel, as far as um the kingdom is concerned i believe they have to do with israel but i think the entire problem this is why the you know the jews rejected christ as the messiah because they were looking for this davidic king and this is what i was talking about in the first episode um dwight pentecost says in his books um in his book um Uh, things to come that uh, in the um, come on Jeremy my mind just went blank he says in his book that um, all of the uh, Old Testament prophecies that pointed oh I know what I was going to say he said that when Jesus came the first time what he came to do was set up the messianic kingdom but because the jews rejected him he wasn't able to
1: that's not and, true though
0: oh i know i know um mm-hmm. uh, that is completely not true uh but the first person who said that of course was to that's why I, I wanted to ask about that you know before phil left but um That's why I say that they just completely adopted the Sorenthus view. And I wanted to ask Bill if he heard the story of, uh, you know, John the Apostle when he entered the bathhouse where Sorenthus was.
1: Oh, yeah. He was like, this guy's a fool, don't have nothing to do with him, get this guy out of the pool. Yeah, Yeah, I'm familiar with that story. Like, that guy was a no-good hooligan. But, like, here's the thing. Just because these people had a wrong view, of why Jesus came and what the Old Testament prophecies were doesn't negate the Old Testament prophecies. Oh, I agree. Right. But, but like the purpose uh, of Jesus' first coming had nothing to do with setting up a millennial kingdom, as these dispensationalist jokers would have us believe. But the it did reason- have
0: to do with setting up the kingdom.
1: It did, the kingdom but of like God
0: is on you,
1: right, it, it had to do with setting up. Well, here's the thing. Okay, so. When Jesus came the first time, he had two missions, okay? But they tied into the substance of a greater mission. There's a reason why everyone missed, even the disciples by their own account, missed the idea of that suffering servant. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, because the scripture, there is a abundance of talking about jesus ruling and reigning and his people ruling and reigning with him there's just an abundance of it in the old testament and you kind of have to dig a little deeper with discernment and rightly divide the word of truth to see the suffering servant is the first chapter of that story right but it's just a chapter of that story that finds its fulfillment in the new heavens and the new earth at the end right here's the thing man the reason jesus came Was so that he could open up a doorway for us to enter into the spiritual kingdom so that we could proclaim this gospel so that many people could be invited to the wedding feast.
0: Yeah, and so, you know, he he
1: died so that there could be one new man, both Jew and Gentile, Mm -hmm. saved and redeemed. Spiritual Israel. Right, spiritual Israel. And this wedding feast is the utmost of importance, right? we know from scripture we can timestamp when that wedding feast is going to happen. We also know from scripture that before anyone rules and reigns, we have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to receive our recompense and our reward uh, for the things that we've done on this side of heaven. Right. And so like when the new millennium, when the, when, when Jesus rules and reigns the first thousand years of that, then going into eternity. Right. When when it says that we rule and reign with Christ, that means we have new job assignments. People think that, like, people think for some crazy reason that our destiny is here on earth. It isn't. The only destiny that we have is twofold on earth. Number one, Leonard Ravenhill said this. He said that um, this life is but a just rehearsal for eternity. Mm -hmm. That's all it is. It's a job. It's a job. uh, It's a job interview. For what we were really called to do, like when God created you and he created me, his purpose wasn't necessarily like, oh, he's going to be doing this for the 70 or 80 years that he's going to live. It's I've called Jeremy to do something really cool for eternity. Now, whether Jeremy apprehends that, it's up to this now. So we prove ourselves So that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we can have boldness in that day. If we live as Jesus was in heaven, so are we now here on earth. The second thing that Jesus did was he called people to come to this wedding feast, which is the kingdom of God. And we are those heralds going out to the highways and the byways. We are to compel men to be reconciled to God. And that's how we prove our faithfulness. That's how we reprove our reward after the judgment seat of Christ, which is a future event that can only take place after Jesus Christ comes back and resurrects all the one new man throughout church history and the Old Testament stuff, because we all stand before that thing. Here's the interesting thing, though. Jesus lived for 33 and a half years on earth. During that time, at any point, he could have died for our sins. Because all that needed to happen legitimately was that a sinless, spotless lamb had to die for our sins. The moment Jesus turned 12 years old and reached that age of accountability and was perfectly sinless and blameless, he could have gone to Golgotha the very next day. And he could have died. The reason he spent those three and a half years in public ministry was to train up a group of people to go out and to keep Absolutely. the herald going forth, that this, this, this kingdom is now open. If you repent, you repent, lay down formal allegiances to life, become a pilgrim and a stranger passing through, and join me in this kingdom. Jesus likens communion and the, the sacrifice, this price that he paid for the bride, right, was a dowry, it was a down payment that's the new covenant in his blood that all has to do with the wedding ceremony, right? The wedding feast is the consummation of that. But think about this Jeremy, me and you are both married. We've been married for quite a while to wonderful women. We both kind of dated completely out of our league. Uh, we both got with who uh way above our pay grade that helped us be awesome people. But like the thing about the thing about us being married, man, the reality, the substance of our life, right? Didn't, didn't start till after we said, I do. Absolutely. That's when it really hits home. We place way too much emphasis on the three and a half years of Jesus's life and salvation on the cross. And it's, I'm not downplaying it, but that was the promise of a substance that's going to happen in the future. When Jesus returns and sits on his own throne and we rule and reign with him on earth after the resurrection of the righteous and we go to the wedding feast and we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, then and only then do we become co-heirs and rulers with Jesus. And that's a marriage term, just like my wife has the authority to, we have a joint checking account. Either one of us can go and use it because in the eyes of the law, we're one person we're one joint being. That only happens in the future. That could not be happening now, not even at all, because the resurrection hasn't happened, the judgment seat of Christ hasn't happened, and the marriage supper of the Lamb hasn't happened. And until those three events happen, there is no millennial kingdom, and there is no ruling and reigning with Christ. And here's the amazing thing about that. That's the thing we were created for. We focus way too much on trying to figure out the things that are so germane to this life and the theology of this life that we pay very little attention to the theology of the next life. When in reality, that's the substance of why Jesus died on the cross. In the Jewish wedding ceremony, that cup of covenant and that dowry just bought people an engagement. Our baptism is an engagement to Jesus We renew those vows of engagement and chastity every time we take communion and we remember the death of Jesus. Our real life does not even begin until after the resurrection, the rapture, Jesus is coming. It doesn't even begin until after the judgment seat and the marriage supper. Then our life truly begins. And that's why these events have to be future events. Because the moment we start trying to do any of this stuff ahead of schedule, and Jesus won't even do anything ahead of schedule. He waits till the Father says, okay, now you can start. Until then, he keeps us separate, and our message must be separate. It must be separate. This is why this is so important. We cannot confuse the the high priesthood of Christ with the ruling and the reigning of Revelation 20 because those are two separate events, and the moment we do, we cross back over into the very folly that Jesus warned about with Pilate of having an earthly kingdom. Jesus won't take that 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 up one day earlier than the Father will let him, and yet we have new apostolic reformation jokers who the majority of are all millennial for a reason or post millennial for a reason because it's a neat way to justify them pulling this ruling and reigning into the seven mountains of dominionism or as Lance Walney would say, we use the keys of David to spiritually make the millennial kingdom reality in our time. That's not well, it. You know
0: man. me well enough to know I'm far from oh, a domain. Yeah, You're a
1: hundred percent away from that stuff. And that's why we have agreement on some of these things. It's like, that's where the dangerous thing is. And for our listening audience who are really weighing this, these things out for themselves too, man, um, that's why it's so important that we rightly divide these scriptures and fall back on, man, maybe these uh, early church fathers knew exactly what they were talking about. Because man, if we start trying to do something that even Jesus won't do, Jesus won't take this throne until his father permits him to. And if we try to establish Jesus's throne, because that's what dominionism is, Right political dominionism voting christian nationalism we want to establish as jesus throne on this earth because we have a wrong view of ruling and reigning with christ which doesn't happen until the earth until after jesus returns he doesn't even sit on that throne yet i do and, want to
0: ask you about the olivet discourse um you know we know it takes place in matthew mark and luke but matthew 24 is probably the most detailed um you know, it begins with the disciples, you know, asking Christ um, as he sat sits on the Mounts of Olives. They, they come on them privately and say, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And we've talked about how even the, the disciples were hoping and thinking, you know, that eventually Christ would set up his... Um, you know, millennial kingdom, his messianic kingdom and sit on the throne of David. Um, I guess the one question I have before we look at it is why they wouldn't have asked him about that. I know they did, you know, in Acts, as you pointed out, but um, like in the the Olivet Discourse and, and really all three of the Gospels that, talk about um, that or that had the Olivet discourse, uh, when it comes to you know the time where uh, Jesus would have mentioned the millennial kingdom when it comes to the tribulation time, like around uh, I guess um, verse twenty eight, um, or even verse twenty four where it says, "For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, wherefore if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And then verse 29, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send... And you guys covered this, um, what was it, Thursday night or Friday night, one or the other, Friday mm-hmm. night. Um, he shall send his angels with the great sound of the trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree when... His branches yet tender, and putteth forth leaves, Ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And contrary to what the preterists believe, he's talking about the generation that he just mentioned. Right, uh, the one that sees the Antichrist ruling. Yeah, not the Absolutely. rebirth of Israel or anything like that. Yeah.
1: Correct.
0: But he says, um, heaven and earth. No, he says, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass, till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of no worse, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the son of man be and shall two be in the field. One shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore for ye. Know not what hour your Lord doth come, but know this that if the good man of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken. Therefore be you also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find doing so. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, I guess the question I was asking is before um, we got because you you know you started with matthew twenty five and then I read some of the other parts of matthew twenty five But in the Olivet discourse, I'm just curious as to why the disciples didn't mention the millennial reign and why Jesus didn't mention it when he was, you know, literally talking about the time if there was any if there was ever a time for Christ to mention it, it seems like it would have been then.
1: Well, okay, so first of all, the reason Jesus is answering this stuff on the Olivet Discourse the way that he is, is because the disciples aren't asking him about the millennial kingdom. They're asking him about the events that precede the millennial kingdom. And so but Jesus he,
0: answers. He goes right, right. all the way to right. the but,
1: but, but, Let me finish answering the questions, sir. Okay. The disciples on many different occasions asked him about the ruling and the reigning and the millennial kingdom. And he answers those questions throughout the Bible. How many times were they fighting over who gets to sit at the right hand of Jesus when Jesus returns to rule the earth? Five, six times? Yeah. Yeah. And then Jesus corrects their theology, right? So the disciples, when they wanted to ask specifically about the millennial kingdom and the thrones and the sitting on the thrones, Jesus talked about that. Jesus goes into Jerusalem, starts talking all this apocalyptic sermonry, and they're like, "Uh, when's that going to happen? And Jesus takes them through Matthew 24 and 25, which I believe have to be read together. I believe that that's one continuous I thought. I agree. That's why I said earlier about the chapters confusing Right, Jesus. right. So Jesus starts off, right, answering their initial question. Because they asked, when are these things going to happen? And he starts talking to him. He's like, you're going to see the beginning of sorrows. He lists off a bunch of stuff. That's, I believe, are the seals that you read about in the book of Revelation, right? Um, the false prophets, all that stuff, the wars, the rumors of wars, that's all the seven, the seven seal type stuff. He starts talking about all these events. And then he says, now I'm going to answer your question. When you see the Antichrist ruling in the secret chamber and all of this other stuff and people are saying there he is and there he isn't, he's come. Like when you see that, know that I am coming soon and then I am returning when you see these things, like like you said, you talking about Israel being reborn. The parable of the fig tree is when you see these events that I'm talking about in Matthew 24, when you see the seals being opened, when you see the Antichrist on the earth, when you see him ruling and reigning from the temple, which is the secret place, and they're saying that he has come. This Messiah and the false millennial kingdom is set up. He's like, don't mistake it. When I come, you'll know I'm coming with lightning from east to west. If they say he's in the desert, believe him not. If they say he's in the secret chamber, which is the holy of holies, believe him not. He says, when you see these things, know that my return is near. Then he launches into a series of parables, which all center around the judgment seat of Christ and the millennial kingdom. So even though that they don't start off with that as their question, he gets around to answering it. He tells them about the servants who were faithful and then the servants who weren't, the servants that said, "You know what, Our master delays his coming." You know like, and that's a that's kind of a reference back to what Barnabas believed about the six thousand years and then the millennial kingdom being the seventh year of the thousand year rest, and that there's like a break in between that sixth and seventh year, that sixth year of man, where the master delays his coming out of mercy to get the final few people in the harvest to come to the Lord. And he starts saying, look, the servants, and he talks about the the parable of the talents. Now he's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about that judgment seat of Christ, right? And then he mm-hmm. goes straight into Matthew 25, and then he starts talking about the millennial kingdom where he sits on that throne. He says, when I come in my power and my glory and I sit upon my throne, I'm going to start judging all the nations. I'm going to start dividing them up, all of this stuff. So like you see in Matthew 24, him going to the point of the the rapture, the seventh seal. You see him going to that point or that sixth seal. You see him going to that. But then Matthew 25 is all about the marriage supper. It's all about the judgment seat of Christ. It's all about him coming back and sitting on the throne and his power and his glory. So like, it's not that the disciples had missed a prime opportunity to ask him, like if they would have asked him at any time about the, no, they asked him throughout the whole entire Bible about the sitting on the thrones in the millennial kingdom, Jesus did it. But he, but to your point, he answered their question about what the signs will be preceding that event and then followed up with the Millennial Kingdom stuff. So he threw that in for free, even though they didn't ask about it. Does that make sense?
0: It it does. Um, that's really the reason why I went back to, you know, that there was a long time in between when you read uh, Matthew 25 and when I went back and read it. But that was the main reason why I read it. Um, I see everything you're saying. Um, I guess that... <laughs> I guess I um, was hoping that I was going to be able to find something like Revelation twenty, you know, in the uh, written somewhere else in the New Testament.
1: Um, Apart from the, all the verses that I read, that chronologically the put the same events, read, just didn't the use a thousand you, years. Yeah.
0: I haven't, um, I haven't touched on them at all. I've got. Mm,
1: like would you, word, would you have to see the word would you have to see the word 1000 years in order to link those no, two No, not 1000
0: not 1000 years just something that would show that it's the whether it's cuz to me it makes no difference whether it's a literal 1000 years or just a period of time but something that shows that after He has um, come back and judged the antichrist and the false prophet, you know, sent them to the lake of fire. That he's going to set up this long period and then let sin back on the earth. And but I, I I saw everything he doesn't
1: doesn't let sin back on the earth, sin's already existing on the earth during the millennial kingdom,
0: yeah. From that point of view, I agree, but um. Since also already existing on the earth from the amillennial point of view, and uh, that's why you know I've said this over and over. I just want to I guess I just want to um get things right. I have even when I was um after I started preaching, man, you know I, uh, have told people the wrong thing and had to apologize
1: so many times. Me too.
0: Me you too, know, man. I just don't
1: want to have to do that. Pie, right? Because we're students yes. of the word. Like, if we're not students of the word and we're not open to be taught new things and to be corrected in our theology, we'd probably still both believe in the preacher of rapture and we probably would have never eaten any of that humble pie, right? But that's, that's right. what we do, man. We sharpen each other in iron and we go on a trust of, of truth no matter where that that truth leads. And we know that we have this safeguard regardless of what we agree on or disagree on is that the Holy spirit leads us into all truth. He teaches man truth. And if we stay humble and if we stay on this journey and we stay open and teachable to the spirit of God and we open up our Bibles and we pray for that revelation, eventually we'll come to that truth.
0: I did want to ask you this and I wanted to ask Phil this too. Um, If, the scriptures still said what they said but the early church fathers they um unanimously believed the amillennial point would that have any
1: bearing on the way you guys believe oh yeah oh yeah like if if like the people if the overwhelming not like one or two outliers that didn't really start happening till like 300 or so AD, like if the majority of the witness was like, Hey, we knew John, we knew him personally. He trained us. I'm polycarp. Um, yeah, Jesus, gave me, Jesus gave me the, Jesus gave me the thumbs up on my theology. If he could have corrected anybody, he gave me the, I got no problem with you. Theology thumbs up. Like there's no pastor on earth that can say that Jesus took time to speak to John. I agree. Right? Church. if if they would have if they would have came out and been like oh man it's all amillennial and we're interpreting this wrong two thousand years ago i'd be like well it's amillennial because that's the majority of the people that knew it the best like they knew it the best and they could they could completely grab on to what that was because they knew the touchstone they knew the rosetta stone of what it meant but that's not what they say they they say the complete opposite of amillennialism. And this is why it holds water, man. Like, like up here on this shelf, like this Bible right here is my dad's Bible. Huh. It's a treasure to me. I keep it on the shelf now because it is so worn out. I used it when I preached. He used it when he preached in the seventies, like they were going to bury him with that. And I stole that back. You know what I'm saying? I've-
0: Got a couple of them like
1: that. That works. like It has to I sit had. up there because if I start using it, it falls apart. It literally will fall apart. And I can't even get it rebound. But the cool thing about my dad's Bible is he's like me. He wrote everything in the flyleafs of this book. Every sermon that he preached, every uh, Bible study that he taught, his notes are there. Like my dad was the sort of person that would walk up to the pulpit, put the Bible down, open it. And then read the chapter, and his, his notes would be right here. Here's the interesting thing, man. He died uh, in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. So now we're talking like it's 2021. If you or I didn't know my dad and we started reading that, those notes, we would have a general understanding of my dad's theology bef- because of what he wrote in the Leaves of the Bible, right? And he wrote about baptism right a lot but he was a lutheran minister and they believed in baptizing infants but if we read the notes a lot of times we'd be like oh he's talking about baptism and it's cool because it's all scriptural because when we read something apart from knowing who wrote it and what they truly believed in back then the notes take on a whole different meaning. The only reason any of those notes make sense to me is because I knew the one who wrote those notes. Yeah. And unless, unless if you read that, you're going to see something completely different. And a lot of times it's going to be right. But like on the hard things, I know what he's talking about. Cause I knew my dad, the same thing goes with the early church fathers, right? We know what John meant because they knew the guy who wrote revelation. They literally were reading from the fly notes of his book. And so like when the overwhelming testimony is millennial and they, they had no hold for the amillennial viewpoint, they were the only ones uniquely enough to understand what the notes in the fly notes meant because they knew the person who wrote it and they could ask that person. They were deeply familiar with the people. They knew Polycarp. They knew John. Like, and even the disciples of Irenaeus, those people knew Polycarp, and they passed that learning tree on. When they when they see what John wrote about the thousand years, there's a reason they said that's a literal time frame, because they knew the one who wrote it. When they read his notes in the flyleaf of the book, they knew what that meant. We don't. We will read it through our modern interpretations, but they knew the guy that wrote it, so they knew exactly what he meant. And that's why I always fall back on that as the ultimate source of commentary. And ever since I started looking at scripture that way, it's shaken my whole paradigm. And I know it has you. You've been on this journey, yeah. man, going Thank back, you. reading the church fathers. And that's what I love, man. So I'm excited in your life because you're just like, I want to know what the early people believed because I want to know who wrote in the fly notes of the book. And like, that's how the Holy Spirit grips us, Right because of our love for understanding truth and because we want, we give a darn about the source material, right? We, we ain't going to sit here and be like, oh, hell, Lindsay, tell us what to believe, right? And we ain't going to be like Benny Hinn, tell us how to pray for the sick. Heck no, we ain't going to do that because we have respect for the source material, you know? So yeah, if the early church was like, amillennial was the thing, I'd be amillennialist. I'd be well, like I'm right there with you
0: far as the early church goes and most things i uh and i shouldn't do this um you know we shouldn't necessarily just take the you know the early church writers the anti-nicene writers you know at their word without you know looking at the gospels and the epistles we have have to harmonize
1: between exactly exactly just can't put their stuff on the same level of authority of scripture but if you are honest, they harmonize really well, right? Because oh, they do. They, yeah, they, they know the source material. They were the closest to it. They, so that's always they, the third level of authentication. Like when I study scripture, what does Jesus say? What do the apostles teach? Does the Old Testament show, show any sort of confirmation? Because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit too. And then those three things, because you're talking the Holy Spirit inspiring people directly. Those are my three main levels, using those scriptures to interpret scriptures, those events to interpret events. And then to fact check my work, I use the early church. Because that's where well, they're I is fact I will checking say this. your assumption.
0: I may not, I may not um, have the answer I wanted by the end of this program, <laughs> but I know that I will have it one
1: amen yeah I you mean, like man. this is a this is way a big things are topic. going yeah yeah, yeah this is going maybe than sooner know. than later
0: <laughs> yeah um i do i know that uh it's getting late but i do want to look at just a couple of more scriptures really quick um
1: um can we maybe come back on on a different day because ap- i absolutely. Yeah. i know you're tired i'm tired uh, i've been working all day man
0: we just haven't looked at it that makes both of us. We just haven't looked at any of the epistles. Um, I just want to read, i tell you what, we'll just read just this one. Okay. Um, and we'll see, cause you read, um, first Peter and, uh, I, I've got more scriptures here than we could possibly read. If there was only one person and <laughs> in each, <laughs> in each uh, book, but, um, you know, in Second uh, Peter, uh, in chapter 3, starting, I guess, in, um, starting in verse, even though in verse 3, it says, "...knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming?" For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. But then, if we go down, wait. What, to verse, what
1: verse are we? Which are Second Peter three. What verse? I started
0: with uh, verse
1: three. Um, okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure I was following along. Go ahead, man.
0: And then, and then after four, I skipped down to uh, just because I was trying to save time. I skipped down to verse seven. And it says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, but as long suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And then verse 10 is the one I really wanted to look at. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall met, shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Um, He's talking about, of course, the day of the Lord here. Um, So I guess the thing to ask is, in the premillennial point of view, the day of the Lord would what have to be after the millennial reign, right? No. Well, if if that day brings about the destructions of the heavens by fire,
1: the, it's the ele- first chapter. It's the first. It's the first sentence of that process. It doesn't the mean first. that this, like this is this is talking about a series of events. This isn't like everything happens and then you move on to the next verse. The same thing can be said about the chapter breaks, right? That you were talking about Verses also have that thing, the way that these people wrote would, they would condense a timeline into a, into a paragraph. It's called the reader's digest version for lack, for people that understand what the reader's digest is. Although many people don't even know what that is anymore. Not in this day and age. Right now there is a certain redemption to creation that happens when Jesus returns. You can read that in the Old Testament. You can even read that in Corinthians where Paul talks about how nature itself is groaning for that day of redemption. Mm-hmm. When Jesus returns, man, there is going to be an atmospheric shift that will remove the curse, and the, the curse of sin from the planet. There will be a certain part of the element that burns up at the brightness of his coming. That's what makes the brightness of his coming so bright, right? He's going right. to be removing everything that hinders love from the face of planet earth. He's going to be removing sin. Um, the the stain of the mark of the beast, he's going to be removing that. He's going to be setting up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is going to be a very spiritually charged place. Like there's going to be, it's the start of the redemption process. The day of the Lord is literally a thousand years long. That's why it says, but don't be ignorant. The day of the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, thousand years is there. The day of the Lord is not just one day. That's where we get it wrong. People will assume that on the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's return, that the heavens and the earth pass away and all these things happen in a sentence. The day of the Lord is more than one day, the day of the Lord is a thousand years long. And then it goes into eternity on top of that. And I can tell you exactly how Barnabas, the guy that traveled with Paul, would interpret this scripture because he's very clear on how he interprets this. He says there's six years of man. The number six is the number of man. God created the world in six days. He could have created it in one day, two days, three days, four days, five days, six days, a million years, a thousand years. He created it in six days because six is the number of man. After six thousand years, there's a day of rest, which is a Sabbath day. And God took a rest on the seventh day. After the seventh day ended, then the eighth day began. And we don't talk about the eighth day, but the eighth day was when the Garden of Eden was in full effect. And that's when creation truly began. So God took six days creating creation, one day of rest. And then on the eighth day, everything started for real. The clock didn't even tick one second till after the eighth day. Barnabas talks about this, that 6,000 years is appointed unto man. Then the Lord delays his coming for a little bit to give that final gospel mercy call. Then at the seventh day of rest is a 1,000 years to prove, and this is the thing, We talked about how God proves his grace and how that comes in the age to come. God proves his grace to the world and to the devil and to all the fallen dominions, that the only and to Israel, right, that only one king should have ever ruled, and that was Jesus Christ. And he proves that through a righteous reign. He gives the earth a Sabbath rest and creates the earth recreates certain aspects of it. The earth rests for a Sabbath of 1,000 years, the age of the Messiah. And then the eighth day after the 1,000 years, there's a new heaven, new earth. Then everything becomes one. Everything is then, and and death and hell are taken off planet. Everything comes back to the original factory warranty. It's just a giant reboot. And there is nothing else but the new start The the timing doesn't even one second doesn't even start on this new plan till till the eighth day, and so that's just another reason why this passage is talking literally that day of the Lord is a thousand years, and this day where everything passes away that's just a series of events. Man, you have to take this scripture in light of the other scriptures that we read tonight and Revelation twenty. Have to harmonize them. And then, like I did, you fact check your work by seeing what the early church fathers thought about this passage. And Barnabas is the guy who traveled with Paul, man, is like, this is what this passage means. Yeah. And I, I would tend to believe someone that, you know, Paul wrote most about Bible prophecy than anybody. And there's probably one dude on the earth, besides maybe Timothy, that knows what he's talking about, might be Barnabas. Yeah, yeah Paul
0: says it in, uh second Thessalonians and 6 he says the in it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you and to you who are troubled rest with us when the lord jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not god and that obey not the gospel of our lord jesus christ who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all of them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. And, you know, uh, we are definitely going to have to get together and... uh, (laughs) Yeah, this is a long series
1: of conversations, right? Yeah, and, like, probably, I'm still learning on stuff too about this, man. Like, like I'm on the same journey of truth you are, too, man. Yeah, so
0: we just we just didn't have enough time. there's not enough time to to go through this. Maybe. Um, you know, I probably should have come to you earlier, and uh, instead of taking two um, episodes to cover the wrong view of it. Uh, maybe I should have just covered it all in one, but, you know, I had people writing me saying, you know, if you would cut your shows down to an hour and not go over an hour the way that... Um, I forget who they said did it. But the way they do, then you'd have a lot more viewers, and, you know, I could care less. I want people who watch my show... I, I want them to be the people who actually want to know the truth, I'm not worried about getting uh, even a thousand views, much less all these hundreds of thousands, you know. But I I would like the view, I mean, you know, the shows that we do on, you know, Jesus and the gospel, I want to reach as many people, you know, for the gospel of the kingdom as possible. But, you know, it is what it is. The Lord is going to allow the people who are supposed
1: to see it, to see it. And. Yeah. And don't I, let, don't I, let people tell you, man, that your shows have to be a certain length. People tell me that all the time. And I'm doing three hour shows on a regular I, basis. You know what I do? And I, my, and this frequency family is ride or die, man. Like. Yeah, they are. I consider
0: myself one I'd, of them. Yeah.
1: And I'll take every one of those. than the casual YouTube bot viewers that I got a jury rigging an algorithm so I can get a view. I don't care how many views I get through the views that I get. Do they track with what God is saying is what God's okay. saying. Uh, is he planting things in people's heart? Are they equipping themselves to do it to the end? Brother, you take as much time as you need to, to speak the truth, man. And if you want to take two shows to expose the false of you before you hit the real, that's how the spirit's leading you, man. You do it that way, dude. And you, and you just, let the critics hoot and holler all they want, cause we're holy troublemakers, dude. We we have we sometimes be, yeah. do things to defy the Pharisees, sir. And you gotta be like that, cause that's part of what Jesus did, you know. Can we pray before yeah. we go, man?
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I don't right. even know how long we've been going, but uh, I this, So if you want to close, you can.
1: Yeah, let, let's pray. Father thank you for everyone that's watching this or will watch it in the future lord and lord let the the scripture draw people to a hunger after righteousness lord I thank you that we, all three of us, were able just to come on and break down things and sharpen viewpoints and just throw a lot of viewpoints out there, Lord. Hopefully it makes everyone that watches just real hungry to to take these things and use them as a springboard to find truth for themselves. And so, Lord, when that happens, we believe that your Holy Spirit will do his work. And and will guide them into all truth. And so we pray a prayer of protection over everyone that's going to hear this, Lord. That their minds be guarded with Jesus. And they be not distracted by the cares of the world or the lust of the devil. Bring everyone who needs to hear this show to this show. And protect Phil, Jeremy, and I as we uh, labor in the kingdom. and And more than anything, Lord, keep us humble. Keep us teachable. And keep us on a journey of truth and reveal truth to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Amen. I don't know what in the world's going on with my camera, but I can't see myself. Can you see me?
1: I see your uh, next chapter radio network there. I don't know. Shenanigans. But, uh, well, at least the yeah. shenanigans happened after we were done. So there you
0: go oh there it goes well I'm gonna um you know of course I'll have to uh do a little bit with it editing wise and uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh do another one soon and uh, I uh I may air it on Saturday since you won't be having a Saturday program but um, it really just all depends um, on how things go because I would like to uh, watch a show Friday, although I do my show early enough on Fridays to where I could still watch yours. You know, I do mine at 6 Eastern, so.
1: And whenever you want to air, just air it, man. Like, it's video, dude. Whoever wants to watch both of our shows can come and catch it. Absolutely. Well, you know, like, I'll go and watch stuff that you do afterwards. So it's like, just air it when you want to air it, man. Whenever you think that people will need to see it, whenever you have time to make a good product, just air it when you want to air it, man. All
2: right, brother. I love you.